So I almost made it 30 years of life without ever watching the movie Cinderella. And then we had a daughter. And as she got older, she wanted to watch this movie Cinderella. So being a father, of course, we put it on, we watched it. And it's a cute story. You probably mostly all of you have seen it. The story kind of rags to riches, this down-and-out girl who's kind of uh, looked down upon and oppressed by her stepmother and stepsisters, makes it. She marries a prince. I'll tell you this, though. I watched that movie, and I walked away no different. It was a nice, cute story. Nostalgic for many people. Sentimental. But it's just a story. My fear is that many people today approach the birth of Christ no different. It's a nice, cute story for many people of a baby born in a manger with stars and shepherds and wise men. And it's just for them a story that has no bearing on their life, no significance to how they live. So we're here this morning taking a break out of our normal lives to sing about this child who was born. You're now taking some time out of your day to listen to me talk about a child born. Why? What's so significant about this child? Literally billions of children have been born in human history. We don't get together and sing about them. We don't sing about their birth. So why? What's so important about the birth of Jesus? So we're going to take a break out of our normal kind of Christmas time reading the story of his birth. And I want to take us to Philippians and look at the significance of his birth. Really, the significance lies in the question of who's in the manger? Who is this child born? So with that in mind, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, you can find it on page 921 of your pew Bible. There's a pew Bible in front of you. Please feel free to just take that home. If you don't have a Bible, we would love for you to take it and read it. But with that said, Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. If you're taking notes, our main point today will be this. Your God was made low to raise you up. We've been singing that. We introduced that song this year. That's going to be the title of this sermon. Your God was made low to raise you up. And our outline is going to be very simple today. Our first point is going to be that Jesus is true God. From the first half of verse 6. Jesus is true God. And then our second point is going to be Jesus is true man. He is truly God and he's truly man. 
And that's why this birth is so significant. So, we are literally parachuting into the middle of a book here. So, by way of context, briefly, in chapter 2, Paul starts out with this command that we should be humble. That we should be people who consider others more important than ourselves. And if you're reading that, you're like, why would I want to do that? Why would I want to be looking out for others? I'm about me. Our culture's about us, why? not others. So Paul says, here's why. Look at Jesus. That's exactly his nature. That's exactly what he did. So he starts in verse 5 to lay out the example of Christ. In verse 5, he tells us to have this mind among ourselves, which is ours in Christ. This example that Christ sets forth is ours if we're Christians. If we're in Christ, we have Christ in us, and this union with him gives us fuel to live like he did, others-focused. So with that in mind, verse 6, the first part of verse 6, Jesus is true God. We read in verse 6, who, though he was in the form of God. The word who is referring to Jesus back in verse 5, who, though he was in the form of God. Just two words to kind of point out before we kind of make more of it. The word was has the idea, or we could translate it, existed. Who, Jesus, though he existed, eternally existed. And then we have this word form. We hear the word form and we often think the shape of something, kind of the outward form. The idea of this word here, though, is quite opposite. It actually is talking about his very nature, the very essence of a thing. Jesus existed eternally by nature, God. It's not just saying that Jesus was like God or that he looked like God. It's saying that by his very essence, his very nature, who he is, is God. Jesus is true God. Now, how did you get that? Well, keep reading the verse. He's going to further define what the word form of God means. It says he did not count, see what it says there? Equality with God, a thing to be grasped. So being in the form of God is further defining what it means to be equal with God. I am not much of a mathematician. I had to look this up. But the Greek word here for equal is where we get the beginning of the word isosceles. Isosceles triangle, right? Apparently that's when all three sides are the same. That's the word here. Fully equal. Jesus, in the form of God, means he's fully equal with God. Now let's back up one, one kind of just let's lay the foundation thing before we move on seems to be that God in his word here is saying that there's some distance between God and Jesus. Notice it's saying he's equal with God. He's in the form of God. We read that the God the Father exalts him. So what do we have here? Is Jesus different than God, or is Jesus a different God than God the Father? We need to lay some foundation before we understand what's going on in this text. The first thing we need to do by way of laying the foundation is understand this. God is not like us. I am one being and one person. And everyone you will ever meet that walks this earth is the same. 
one being and one person. So when we come to this kind of text and we start looking at it, we have to understand that God is not like us. So what is God? There's three statements we need to understand that will help us kind of understand this text. The first is that there is one God. One God. The book of Deuteronomy says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is what? One. Well, that was the Old Testament. Jesus came. Well, in the New Testament, the book of James, chapter 2, verse 19, James tells us, You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons even believe and shudder. From Old to New Testament, there's one God, not three gods, not two gods, not many gods, one God. So first statement, we need to understand there's one God. Second statement, there are three distinct persons. That's where it goes beyond our comprehension. That goes beyond how we exist. We're one being, one person. God is one essence, nature being, three distinct persons. One example, you see in the baptism of Jesus. Jesus, the Son, in the water, in the Jordan. The voice from heaven, the Father saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And the Spirit descending like a dove. All three present at the same time. They're distinct persons. One God, three distinct persons, yet all three persons are fully God. We read in this text, to the glory of God the Father. The Father is fully God. We find in John 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Son is God. And then in Acts 5, when Ananias and Sapphira lie, Peter says, you have not lied to God, or lied to man, you have lied to God, you have lied to the Holy Spirit. So before we move on, we have to understand what's happening here. We're seeing the Trinity in this text. We're not seeing two distinct gods. We're not seeing Jesus the God and the Father a different God. We're seeing one God who's eternally existed in three distinct persons. So when we see some separation in language between Father and Son, we're simply seeing distinct persons, not distinct God. So, with that in mind, he tells us in verse 6, who though he was in the form of God, the very essence, the very nature, everything that makes God God, Jesus is. And he's equal with God. We have in this verse one of the clearest and strongest statements that Jesus is God in all the New Testament. Just consider what we're saying. Consider Jesus' existence for all eternity. He has dwelt for all eternity in unhindered, matchless joy in communion with the Father. This is the one the book of Isaiah says, this one, the Son, is the one whom my soul delights. The Father speaking of the Son, my soul delights in Him. The Son for all eternity knows only this, unmatched unrivaled love from his Father poured out upon him for all eternity, and he's returned that to the Father. That's how he's dwelt for all eternity. That's what he's known for all eternity. He's dwelt for all eternity in an environment free of sin. He's dwelt for all eternity with no limits to his power, no limits to the exercise of his will, never growing hungry, never growing thirsty, never needing anything. That's how he's dwelt for all eternity. 
From the moment he created the angels, yes, some of them rebel, but from the moment he creates them, there has been endless praise of the Son in heaven. We read in Isaiah 6 that, that Isaiah sees a vision of God high and lifted up, and the train of his robe fills the temple, and the angels cry one to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And then in John chapter 12, Jesus said, They spoke of me. That's what he's been in for all eternity. Jesus is truly God. Jesus is truly God. Second point, and this is where we'll spend our time today. Jesus is truly man. So we are talking about in the first half of verse 6, the creator of the entire universe. The one who made you and everything. And this is what we read about him. Verse 6, the second part. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now that word grasped, it means in the Greek to exploit or take advantage of. Jesus has full rights and possesses in himself full authority over everything. Well, how does he use his divine authority? Not to exploit others. Not, not to accumulate to himself. He already has all things. He doesn't use his authority to push others down so he's raised up. Rather than grasping He's open-handed. The very nature of his deity, his godlikeness, causes him to be selfless, to look outward, to serve others. He doesn't use his authority for himself at the expense of others. Is that not so different than our world today? Everything we see in our world, people that have power often use for self. Turn on the news and you will find country after country where leader after leader uses their power over a country to accumulate them wealth at the expense of the people. Turn on the TV, read the paper. You'll find CEO after CEO doing what? Using their power to accumulate to themselves wealth and more stuff at the expense of those they are intended to serve. Even in the church. Church leaders often use authority to abuse and self-exalt. In this text, not so with Christ. Not so with the king. Not so with the one who is over all things. He doesn't count his authority, his equality with God, his divine essence as something to grasp, to exploit, to use for his own advantage. Verse 7. But he made himself nothing. He, literally, the, the text reads, he emptied himself. Focus on the word himself. This is a voluntary act. It doesn't say he was humbled. He humbled himself. He willingly comes low. He willingly comes down. It's a voluntary act. What this doesn't mean is he ceased to be God. He doesn't empty himself of anything of his divine nature. He, God can't stop being God. God is all his attributes at one time. If he were to stop being some of his attributes, he'd stop being God. 
So this isn't he emptied himself of being God. He doesn't do that. One of my favorite songs. We sing, I pick up for us to sing. And can it be? What a beautiful song. There is a line in that song that is so not true. He did not empty of himself of all but love. He didn't empty himself of any of his attributes. When he comes to earth, he is still fully just. He is still fully powerful. He is still fully wise. He is still all-knowing. Well, then you say, well, what did he empty himself of? Keep reading the text. He says this. He made himself nothing by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. Jesus doesn't empty himself by losing. He empties himself by adding. That's not good math. I understand that. But that's what this text is saying. It's not that he stops being something. It's that he takes something on. He empties himself by becoming human. He empties himself by becoming a servant. We said our culture, what, what do people with authority do? They are served. The king of the universe serves his servants. He takes on the form. That's the same word we read in verse 6. The very essence, the very nature of a servant. One who has no rights. And he's born in the likeness of men. Jesus becomes true God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He doesn't become now part God, part man. He, he doesn't become a little bit God and a little bit man. He is fully God, 100%, and fully man, 100%. I know, not good math, right? That's what's happening here. He becomes man in a way that does not diminish his godness. And his godness in no way diminishes his humanity. He is fully God, fully man. As the book of Colossians will tell us, he is the God-man. We just sang a few minutes ago, veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail incarnate deity. The word incarnate deity mean, means he's God in the flesh. How does he come low? He leaves heaven and becomes human. He veils his glory. He doesn't lose his glory. He veils his glory in human flesh. That's what's happening in the manger. That's what's so significant about this birth. It's not just a nice, cute story for us to do once a year. God has come to us. God has come to serve. God has come low. What a beautiful text. There, I was literally thinking this morning, I feel my neediness every time I preach. This is a text that no human words can paint the beauty of. I'm at a loss for what even to say. Jesus Christ is so beautiful. He is God who has come to serve us. Just by way of application, if we stop here, he comes in the likeness of men. He's in the form of, he's a human. Do you know what that means? He can identify with us. He knows what we go through by experience. Are you suffering? Are you persecuted for Christ? 
He was persecuted for doing the will of his father. He knows what it's like to be mocked and ridiculed and have people think you're nuts. So he can come alongside of you and give you strength to endure because he endured. Do you know family rejection, people pushing you away? Do you realize that he has half-brothers who thought he was nuts and reject him? He knows what it's like to have family issues. And he can come into that with you. And he knows the experience. Therefore, he knows the right medicine to apply to your heart in that situation. Do you know the pain of losing a loved one? Look at Jesus in John 11 at the tomb of Lazarus. He knows that pain and he weeps. You have a Savior who can come weep with you and gird you up in your suffering. Are you, in monetary senses, poor? Do you know what Jesus says? The birds of the air have nests and foxes have holes. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his, his head. He knows poverty. And he, he endured poverty with complete contentment, so he can come into your situation and help propel you through that with joy. He knows what it's like to be tempted. Satan continually bombarding him. If you're the son of God, make these stones into bread. And he, he, he pushes away the temptation, and he can give you, make way an opportunity for the temptation to flee you. You know what it's like to be crushed under the weight of God's law? I can't do it. I can't do it. Jesus comes under the law, according to Galatians 4, and he keeps it all. So he can come to you as you feel the weight of his law, and he can take the yoke off because he kept it. And then he can enable you to obey. He knows what you go through. He doesn't just know about it. He knows it. Because he became human. That's what's happening in the manger. That's why this isn't just a cute story. That's where our hope is found. God made himself low. Consider his, his lowliness. Consider the lowliness of his coming. We just said he dwelt for all eternity in matchless joy with the Father Endless worship of the angels, a setting with no sin, no limitations to his nature. And consider his coming. He's the king. Kings are supposed to be born in palaces with all the other kings coming to say, we bow down in homage to the king. This is the king of all kings. He should be born in a palace in Jerusalem. Where is he born? He is born in Bethlehem. The only reason we know Bethlehem is because he's born there. Yes, David's born there. But in the significance of Israel, this is a backwoods town that you would not be able to find on a map and never hear about. It's insignificant. He comes. He's born in Bethlehem. No palace. He's born in a cave surrounded by animals and manure. And he's attended by a couple of shepherds. Where are the kings of the world to bow down to him? He comes low. Consider the lowliness of his coming. We just said he comes under the law. This is the lawgiver. And he puts himself under his own law and has to obey it. He comes low. The one worshipped by angels from the moment of their creation. Hebrews 2 tells us he made himself a little lower than the angels. 
The Creator has become a creature. And this text in verse 7 tells us He comes in the likeness of men. But do you realize that phrase shows up in the book of Romans chapter 8? It says He came in the likeness of sinful flesh. Not that he's a sinner, but he, he doesn't come with the, the flesh of pre-fall Adam. He comes with all the limitations and weaknesses of fallen humanity. He makes himself low. He knows our pains. He takes on a body like ours. Consider the humility, the lowliness of his life. He leaves the comforts of heaven for no place to lay his head. He leaves an existence of endless joy and becomes a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He leaves the endless shouts of praises of the angels and exchanges them for shouts of crucify. Mocking. Hatred. He leaves an environment where he is rightfully loved by God the Father and God the Spirit for all eternity, and he comes to a world where he is hated by the very ones who were created for his glory. He makes himself low. He who is never able to be tempted is constantly tempted by Satan. He makes himself low. Why? He takes on the form of a servant. He does it for us. He does it to serve us. He does it for our good. He does it because He loves us. He comes low. He makes Himself a human. The text keeps going, though. It's like He comes even lower than that. Look at verse 8. Being found in human form, what does it say? He humbles Himself. Again, this is a voluntary act. By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus tells us in John 10, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. He voluntarily comes and dies. God, who can never die, takes on flesh to die. That's what's happening in the manger. He's come to die. But it says he dies on a cross. For us, we have a cross right here, and it's not wrong. Right? we got a cross right here. People wear crosses around their necks. Again, not wrong. Understand, that was not the case back then. In Rome, if you're a Roman citizen, the idea of crucifixion is vile. It's so vile, no Roman citizen could ever be crucified. Cicero, a Roman historian, said that the, the word crucify should not be even on the tongue of Roman citizens. It's a death reserved for the lowest of low. It's reserved for slaves and criminals of the state. Well, what about Jews? Jews believe, according to Deuteronomy, that if anyone who's hanged on a tree is accursed. All that to say, a cross back then is not exactly something you want to be identified with. It's a symbol of torturous, vile, lowly death. And the Creator becomes man to die. Not just die. He didn't die of old age. He dies a death on a cross. Again, do you realize what hope is in these words? He comes to die for us. He who never knew pain, 
who is only delighted in by the Father, comes and endures physical agony and mocking. Real, literal nails are driven through real, physical hands and feet. A real crown of thorns is pressed upon a real head. Real blood flows out. He really gasps for air because he's really man. He who knows no sin has sin laid upon him. The Holy One, the angels cry out, Holy, 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 now is looked upon as if He was us. He becomes low. He who is the object of His Father's endless delight is now the object of His wrath because He sees our sin. He's made low. The judge becomes the judged. He's made low. He dies the death of a cross. And that makes your salvation and mine possible. You see, we went through the book of Exodus a few months ago, and we saw a section about priests. And priests were mediators. They were go-betweens between God and man. The priest represented the people to God. He had to look like the people and come before God on behalf of the people. But remember the priest dressed like the inner part of the Holy of Holies. He's got gold and he's got the same linen as as the Holy of Holies because he's supposed to reflect God to the people. And the only way Israel can be right is they have a priest who goes into God, offers sacrifices, and goes out to the people and says, here's what God looks like. Do you realize Jesus, as the God-man, is the only perfect high priest who can stand in your place? He is God. So when he comes in that manger, he brings heaven to earth. When he ascends to heaven, he brings earth to heaven. He brings us together. He reconciles us so that you, a sinner, me, a vile sinner, can be made right in God's eyes. That's why he came low. Your God, the God of this text, came low. Not just emptying himself. Not just taking on the form of a servant. Not just taking on flesh. Not just dying. Doing all that and dying on a cross. Why? For you and me. This is no sentimental story. This is no Cinderella. This is the substance of all our hope. He came low for us. Do you realize the contrast between Adam and Jesus? We fell because Adam grasped for being like God. And God saves us by becoming man. We fall by pride, we're redeemed by humility. That's good news. The text isn't in there. We are not, I promise, not going through 9 through 11. But I want to read this. Because between chapter, or verse 8 and verse 9, there's implied something. He didn't just stay in a grave. And he didn't just rise from the grave. He ascends to heaven where he is seated at the right hand of God. And we pick that verse 9 up there. Therefore, God has highly exalted him to the highest place and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee, should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
He became low, but he was raised back up. And the book of Ephesians tells us that if we are in Christ, we are seated with him in heavenly places. He came low, why? To raise us up. He came low to take sinners up. If you are to be raised up, it will not be by your own doing. It will not be because you in and of yourself are worthy of it. It will be an act of pure mercy through Christ. The way to be raised up is to be brought low. So let me say this. If you're here and you'd say, I don't, I don't know that I've ever trusted in Jesus. I've never turned to him for life. The way to him is not to raise yourself up. It's not to find more worth in yourself. It's not to try to be more obedient so that he'll love you. It's not to do enough religious acts and go through enough religious ceremonies that God would be pleased with you. The way to be raised up is to come low, is to realize you're guilty, is to come to him with empty hands, say, I have nothing to give you. I have nothing to offer you. All I have is to beg mercy on behalf of Christ. And when we come that low, guess what he does? He says, son, daughter, you're in Christ. You're covered. You're washed. You're cleansed. I see Christ. The way we're brought up is to come low. Have you been brought low? See, this Christmas season, our hope is this. He who is in the form of God became man to die, and now he's exalted. So originally, I had intended to go all the way through verse 11. But we're not doing that. So you're going to find in your bulletin, we're going to sing All Glory Be to Christ. We're not doing that. You'll find in your bulletin a different song that we've been singing all this Christmas season, Our God Made Low. So I'm going to pray. But as we sing that song, we're not just singing a story. We're not just singing Cinderella-type, nice, feel-good. We are singing the substance of our entire hope. Our God was made low. Why? To raise us up. Let's pray. Father, we come. Lord, would you help us join the chorus of your angels who endlessly cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. Would we see that you are glorious? Father, would Christ be the only thing in our view at this moment? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.